Chapter twenty one of a Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Haggard Falcon. Having now treated at a considerable length of the falcon from the eyrie, I proceed to discourse of the same bird as taken wild from the sky. This hawk, reared by nature, is strong, speared, and patient of every sort of weather. She ranges uncontrollable over sea and land and seizes for her habitation those places which best please her fancy. Such is her terror that the tercel, her natural companion, dares not to approach her but in the gentle season of love. And even then he is so overawed that he courts her favor by the timorous and winning marks of entire submission. There is no bird the object of her fear, and it is not till after frequent defeats that she declines the battle with those which are actually beyond her power. These accepted, the rest are her prey as they happen to fall in with her flight, particularly green plovers and pigeons, as they are greatest in plenty. She does not obtain her food but by hard flying, and this exercise, as it is wholly under her own regulation, is so far from being injurious to her that it preserves her in perfect health and vigor. Glut in her stomach, short wind, both caused by rest, or ill-managed exercise, and not so easily cured as prevented, are disorders she is unacquainted with in the wide range of the air. She is her own physician, not only in exercise, but also by feeding on the mustard seed and carlock she finds in the crops of the pigeons when they are her prey, and which are to her in the place of medicine. Thus she is ever more in strength, subject to hardly any other disease than old age, and in danger from no other quarter than the resentment of man. The way in which the haggard falcon managers herself is that we ought to follow, as nearly as we can in training her from the eyrie, or in treating her when she comes wild into our hands. I have already made the former part of this observation in discoursing the falcon gentle, and shall endeavor to illustrate the remaining part of it in what I have to say concerning the haggard falcon. Let me just add, towards the further elucidation of what I have formerly said on this head, that without frequent flights it is impossible to have a good hawk she grows useless by constant rest and therefore it must be often interrupted by exercise the falconer must have a perpetual eye on her observing her flights her suppers her digestion her casting her muting and slicing whether often and drooping which is dangerous as by catching heat after her drawing while she is in her grease or by some tedious flight flown before she is thoroughly cleaned by receiving a great gorge after the same which occasions the cray and flanders which proceeds from the cold and dullness of the stomach not kindly digesting what it receiveth now i go on to unfold the method of her reclaiming end of chapter twenty one chapter twenty two of a treaty of modern falconry by james campbell this librivox recording is in the public domain of the manner of reclaiming the haggard falcon. Haggards are taken by art. Fix the pigeon by a string on the ground which you know to be frequented by wild hawks. And having spread your net near the pigeon, conceal yourself out of sight. A haggard perceiving the fowl will come south down on it, and the moment you see her sue-footed, pull the net over her and take her up. When you have got a haggard by this or any other stratagem, you will find her full of meat. Therefore your best way is to set her in a dark place, 
in order to keep her from beating till she have emptied herself next morning seal her that is stitch her eyelids not quite close together and carry her all day on your fist set her by you in the night with a piece of twine tied to her foot which you will pull now and then to keep her from sleeping and at the same time call to her when you discover by stroking her with a feather that she has left off starting you are to accustom her to the rusterhood this method of treating her when taken empty is the same with this now laid down for she is on these occasions angry and fretful and thereby subject to diseases a feather is much better than your hand to stroke her withal because it feels soft and gentle and is therefore more agreeable to her when she endures it easily you are mildly and quickly to pull off and put on her hood at proper intervals of time you are also gradually to slacken the ceiling and to hold this course till she take the feeding you are to give her meat often but in small bits the best time for feeding her is just before taking off her hood and just before putting it on in order to make it agreeable to her all the while you are to use your voice to her and no longer than till she has done feeding that it may be a signal to her of your going to feed her when you have brought her to endure the hood and feed with courage you are to teach her to jump to your fist set her on a perch so high that you may be under her sight because she will be afraid and beat if she see you above her and then unstrike her hood and lure her with a bit of meat using your voice at the same time and she will fly directly to your hand then while she feeds you are to hood her proceed in this kind of way until you have rendered her familiar and made her stomach perfect above all things taking care not to disgust her at you the stomach is the principle of her obedience and therefore it ought to be carefully kept sound right and sharp now you may venture to pull off her hood and let her sit barefaced by you if you then perceive her in any signs of impatience or uneasiness in order to put her into good humor offer her a bit of meat using your voice at the same time this done if she readily jump to your fist and take the meat it is the proper time to accustom her to the lure as soon as your hawk comes readily in the creance to the lure furnished with meat it will then be proper to show her a live fowl at it when she has killed the bird and eaten the head take her gently up with a bit of meat and while she is feeding put on her hood then lure her again to the dead pelt and do so two or three times only for she will at last discover your purpose and being unwilling to be deprived of her prey she will learn to drag it from you when you take her prey often from her she will feel herself injured and begin to hate you to lure her often at one time and at first entrance is the way to have her soon ready for game but use the lure no oftener than i have directed to use it oftener is more hurtful to a field hawk than to a river one for the reason now given that it renders her inclined to caring therefore after she comes willingly to the lure it is high time to lure her loose to live fowls you must let her seize on them and kill them one after another even at your feet for six days together taking care to have her carried by a person who has skill to let her in with her head right towards you lure her to small distance till her stomach be perfect and herself very ready to answer for otherwise she may spy something else out of her way which she likes better and so check for that time which would much hurt her though she should be recovered again 
While she is on the ground pluming herself, or feeding, be fure you always walk around her, using your voice and giving her bits with your hand. Continue to treat her in this manner all the time of her making, till you have won her to lean and bend her body to your hand, and to show herself at least willing to bring you whatever she has in her foot. Now it will be proper to spring her up from live fowl as she comes to you between your assistant and the lure, and take care they be given in a long creance, that she may not kill them far from you. Contrive it so that she may rake them over your head and fall near you, for by this means she will be familiarized to your presence and do her business in it with courage. But were she to see you while she is sitting, coming at a great distance, she would be ready, through fear, to stare at you and to drag, or even to forsake her prey altogether. For want of attention in this direction, many hawks have been rendered useless. Having in this manner bestowed half a dozen fowls on your hawk, you may in the evening suffer her to fly about you, holding her with your voice and lure as near you as you can, that she may pursue her game even over your head. When she is in the air, and her head right in, throw her up a live fowl, and when she has killed it, be sure to reward her well, and your generosity will hinder her from dragging or carrying. Evermore, remember to draw in your hawk by the creance with great gentleness, and to treat her so on every other occasion as the best way to gain her affection. By this method she will be so far from dragging that she will meet you with the dead fowl on her accord, satisfied with the peace she knows you are to give her. End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 of the Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the ill qualities of hawks, and how they are to be cured. It is of great importance to understand the disposition of your hawk, in order to train her up with success. There are some hawks which, after your utmost pains to breed them properly, will abandon you the moment they are at liberty. Your black and swarthy plumed hawks have most commonly this untractable temper. They are indeed birds of metal and high flight, but impatient of control and difficult to be brought under subjection. To reclaim your hawk from this wandering disposition, you are to abate her pride with washing meat and casting, paying always a proper regard to the nature of the weather. It is to be soft and mild. You can do her no hurt by keeping her pretty low till she amend her bad manners, and then you are to raise her gradually to her proper pitch. But if the weather be cold and violent, you must beware of bringing down her flesh too quickly, and of keeping it too long down. This done, take a staunch make-hawk, and, in the evening, throw up a fowl to her when you have sent her to the air. After she has stooped once or twice, and is just about to kill it, stand under the wind with your hawk. Let her see the fowl struck, and go to the quarry. If she fly in with impetuosity, and seize the fowl with courage, in this case you are to cross the wings of the fowl, to hinder it from beating against your hawk, and suffer both her and the make-hawk to feed a few minutes together on it. Then, with clean meat, gently take your make-hawk and leave the quarry to the other, that she may take her pleasure on it. But beware she take no pile or pelf, which would glut her, 
but reward her with clean meat as fhe fits on the fowl, and thus treat her three or four times. This kind of hawk is only proper for waterfowl, and if the next time you carry her to the brook, she fly eagerly with the make hawk at her prey, you may hope well of her for this sport. But if she fly away after all your pains in this way, you are to consider her as irreclaimable. There is another sort of hawks which are of a mild disposition, easily managed and brought to your wishes in making them. String up a couple of fowls, throw off your make hawk at them, and after she has stooped once, or is just going to do so, let in your other hawk. If she look keenly on the make hawk, and contend in flight with her, let her fly on till she has almost overtaken her. Then show her the fowl, if you did not do so before, and let her still contend for it with her antagonist. And so much the better if they kill it at the next downcome. This will give your young hawk great heart, and make her fly with more eagerness another time. A hawk ought to be always served, if possible, before she grow wary, for much fatigue is apt to disgust her, even when successful. There is a third sort of hawks which are made without much trouble, but are, on trial, found to be of inspiring temper, which is apt to spurn at obedience. To a hawk of this character, little liberty is to be allowed while you are making her. She must not be indulged in either very high or very extensive flights, but be kept as close by you as possible. For otherwise, when she comes to be well-blooded on fowl, you never can command her flights, nor will she mind the maycock, but look for her prey in her own way, as if she were wild. If you would therefore gain her affection, you must show her some gain very speedily, else she will seek it for herself, regardless of your attention. There is a fourth sort of hawks, which are fair-plumed, that are very bold and spirited, and when skillfully reclaimed, have much attachment. One of these, let in with other hawks, will be reclaimed with two or three quarries. But, if you have no other hawks, greater trouble is requisite to make them by themselves. In this case, they must be strong, and their stomachs eager to urge them on. Choose at your hour of a fine evening, when all check is passed, and know also of a couple of small fowls in a brook, where you may not be perceived by them. Large waters and many strong fowls give much fatigue to a young hawk. Then throw off your hawk as near them as you can conveniently, that she may be but a short while on the wing before they spy them. If she fly hard and close, she will bring down one of them at the second stoop. For the impetuosity of a hawk terrifies her prey, and brings it the sooner into her power. But if she fail, have in your pocket a fowl ready to throw up to her before she have tired herself too much in pursuit of the one you sprung to her from the brook, that she will easily overtake, and it will serve to put her into spirit after her fruitless chase. Continue to treat her in this way, while she flies solitarily, and she will soon come to your mind, for nothing so much hurts a young hawk's keenness as many toilsome stoops to no purpose. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 of A Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of Bathing and Weathering Hawks. Hawks that are perfectly sound seldom show any inclination for the bath. But when disease heightens the natural heat of their constitution, they are very desirous of it. 
Hawks which flies at waterfowl is so often wetted in chance of her prey that she needs no other bathing than she receives on these occasions. But water ought to be set by other hawks. And, and when they bathe, let them dry themselves in the air, if the weather is temperate. But if it is cold, it is necessary to dry her at such a distance from the fire, as will bring the heat of it nearest to the mild warmth of the sunny air. Then set her on a perch where the cold cannot reach her, and let her come no more abroad that day or night. Too hot a fire would over-dry her feathers, and also overheat her body. Two bad effects, which are carelessly to be avoided. Whereas the haggard is reared by her dam in the open air, on the tops of high mountains, and afterwards exposed to all sorts of weather, therefore you must fall in somewhat with her nature in this respect. The evening and the morning are the proper seasons for giving her the weather or the air, and then before she is fed. You are also to weather her in her hood, in which she will sit quiet and peaceable. But when she is barefaced, she will beat and struggle to the great danger of hurting herself, as well as relapsing into her natural wildness. After she has been sufficiently weathered, you are to feed her with clean meat, on your fist, and then hood her as before. End of chapter 24 Chap Chapter 25 of A Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the times when haggards are to be taken into the mew, and how to prepare them for it. About the first of March, haggards leave their countries abroad, where they had spent the winter, prompted by nature to return through their eyries for the deed of generation. This is the time when old haggards are to be set down in the mew, and must be fed high, to preserve them from languishing under confinement, as also to raise them to their natural violence of their kind. Intermediate haggards, being stronger to resist the inclements of nature, may be flown to about the middle of March, and are then to be set down. The passenger soar falcons, being young and more delicate and tender than the rest, and must therefore be better fed than the other mute hawks. They are impatient of confinement, but with proper management may be made excellent hawks, and flown a month longer than the others. The first of April is the time when they are to be set down in the mew. When you prepare your hawk for the mew, you must raise her flesh gently, never giving or suffering her to take great gorges, for fear of surfeits. While she flew, this caution was less necessary, because her exercise enabled her to digest her plentiful diet, and your care to give her stones kept her stomach free of glut to harm her. But as your intent is now only to raise her flesh, to prepare her for the mew, to give her the same quantity of food, you used to give her, without the same exercise to digest it, will overload her stomach, and, instead of fatness, will fill her with distempers. Now, if you have kept her clean during the flying season, you may set her down on two meals a day, of hot and bloody meat, proportioned exactly to her power of digestion. When in a week or two you perceive her mended, you are to feed her only once a day, and then... If you give her young pigeons flesh, so much the better, but be sure to pluck out the feathers for fear of check. If that flesh is not to be had, you must give her such other stronger food as you have, but in smaller quantity, according to its strength. By this preparation, your hawk will be soon in health and flesh for the mew, but without it is an eminent hazard of perishing by indigestion.
End of chapter 25. Chapter 26 of A Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of putting your hawk into the mews and of retreatment there. Before you put your hawk into the mew, clean her from all sorts of vermin, such as mites and lice, but she may happen to be troubled, and will hinder her from thriving in the mew. Take off her old dresses and give her a pair of new ones, which may be strong enough to last till you set her down again. For to put them on when you draw her would make her struggle, and thus perhaps run her grease. Keep the mews sweet and clean with air and sweeping, and often examine your hawk's casting and mutes to discover the state of her health. Let her always have plenty of fresh and clean water by her, and also of pebbles and gravel, that she may take in her uneasiness the remedies to which her nature directs her. Clean the meat you shoot for her from the black and bruised flesh which is spoiled by the lead and gunpowder, for it is far from being wholesome. The greatest cleanliness is to be observed in everything about her. It is extremely conducive to her health. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 of A Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How the hawk is to be taken from the mew When you take your hawk from the mew, you must take care to set her on a perch, with as little beating or struggling as possible to prevent her from throwing herself into a heap. Set her where she may see and hear people with, without being disturbed or exasperated by them. Then take care very softly on your fist. Carry her lightly up and down and stroke her gently with a feather. When she grows impatient and restless, set her down directly on her perch and proceed in this mild way till she admit of a greater familiarities. But above all things, take care to keep her quiet. To reclaim it and seem a hawk from the mew require the highest care and attention on account of her fatness, and whatever overheats her does for that reason endanger her life. When you by your patient and soft usage you have brought her to eat, you are to feed her twice a day with new meat, clean from the blood in fair water, allowing her just as much and no more than she can easily digest. For the first week or ten days, give her neither casting nor stone. But after that term, give her every night half a dozen of stones, after she has discharged her supper from her gorge into the panel, and these will cast very early next morning. The third week you may begin to give her every night a casting, gradually augmenting the quantity of her meals, and not washing her food quite so hard as at first, paying always a suitable regard to the strength of her stomach. This regimen you are to observe till and during the crying season. Stones and casting are not to be given her the first week, because she is then unruly and full of grease, and were she to be ever so little heated in this condition, she would probably never cast them and so perish. The second week she has become less unruly and has discharged some of her fat, and therefore is able to receive and cast stones. The third week, her stomach has recovered its proper order, and consequently she will cheerfully take her casting every night. At this time, you shall not find by her casting or mutes much grease come from her, nor yet observe that she reclaims and seems according to your expectations. But there is still grease in her, though, for want of exercise, it does not appear, and therefore you must begin to lure her, and give her the benefits of her wings. At first, in short and easy flights, 
which are to be by degrees lengthened according as her health increases. Give her no stones in the day, because then they hinder her from taking food with safety. But at night, they are very powerful in removing the glut and ill humors of the hawk. When you give her casting of flannel or cotton, take care to have them washing as clean as they can be. For, when they are nasty, the filth in either disorders the stomach of the hawk, and makes her sometimes cast it up next morning all black and tawny, with her meat undigested. The best time to give this sort of casting is when the hawk is in seen, and foul in her grease. For then, her disordered stomach is less apt to be affected by it than when she is in a state of pure health. Even when she is in her grease, it sometimes forces her to cast in the morning before her time, when her supper is not yet perfectly digested. When this happens, her casting is unwrapped of a tawny color and filled with muddy water, on which account flannel or cotton ought to be given only on light suppers with some plumage, but never on a great gorge. When, in a morning, she makes a loose, unwrapped casting of plumage, give her a little knot with stone and bring away straggling feathers out of the panel. From the casting you may learn the state of your hawk's body. If the casting looks black and scorched, she is hot and dry. Give her then no more flannel or cotton, but the plumage instead of it. If, from the casting, instead of clear water, which is a sign of health, you squeeze a roping froth, this is a sign of great heat and drought, which, however, is the least to be feared if the casting be wrapped. This is most commonly the case with hawks which are flown before they be thoroughly cleaned, but they may be cured by easy gorges of good meat, with very pure water along with it, during a week, without any casting, but half a dozen of stone, with the stump of a wing, every night after she has put away her supper. In this course do not restore her health in a week. Continue it till it has a desired effect, and then cease to give your hawk any more woolen casting as it appears unnatural to her. Further, with respect to the giving of stones, it is best to give them at night to haggards and ramage hawks, because these birds will not be so well reclaimed in a short time, but that they will have pride and a stirring humor in them, especially in the morning after their night rest. To remove these elements, it is proper you set them in a dark place and give them stones at night. For then your hawks, being quiet, do not stir, beat, or strain their bodies while they are loaded with them. I know by experience, contrary to the opinion of some, that the stones will not overheat her when she is in this condition. When you have brought your hawk to perfect health and flying, Neglect not to give her stones after strong food to purge away the ill humors that will be bred by it in her stomach. If you imagine her greatly after a long flight, give her lyre stones after a light supper. Let her plume herself and set her up warm. Upon the whole, you ought never to fly your hawk from the mew till by gentle treatment you have reclaimed her, and by tender food and moderate exercise you have thoroughly cleansed her. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28 of A Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How it may be known whether a hawk be properly inseen. When your hawk is much inclined to bowsing, this is a sign that her body is too hot. 
If this heat arifes from foulnefs and greafe remaining in her after flie has been flown, her mouth and throat will appear whitifh, her breath fmell difagreeably, and her mutes will have the bluifh colour of ftale fkimmed milk. If, from too great haftc to have your hawk in flying order, you bring her quickly down by fcouring and medicines, you will, inftead of enfeaming her, reduce her to a ftate of feebleness, wherein she will be ufelefs. The art and skill of the falconer is to keep his hawk high of body, when she is scoured and inseamed, that she may be able to fly with force. And if he cannot keep his hawk in this condition, he is no falconer. In this case you will observe her mutes mingled with a kind of curdled matter, of a white colour, which shows her not only afflicted with heat, but also sometimes of the cray. Hawks of this kind contained and produced within them a kind of watery slime, which, while it is in moderate quantity, is necessary to their health, but hurtful when redundant. Plumage is the natural cure of this redundancy. It very often happens that the hawk appears to the eye thoroughly inseamed when she is not in that condition. Nothing is found in her mutes or castings which look like greasiness, and hence a hasty falconer concludes she is in fine order. But this only proves her panel is clean, and this part is generally cleansed by casting stones and good meat before the rest of the body, which, after all these means, is still foul. If the hawk be heated in this situation, her life is still greatly endangered, and therefore time and general exercise must be taken to inseam her body, after the panel is put into order. Too much taste is here to be avoided. For a hawk drawn from the mew cannot be well prepared for a flight in less than the space of four weeks. Hawks which are sooner flown at game may indeed escape with life after being overheated, but their life is thenceforth good for nothing. After their death, you will discover, on opening them, that they have perished by being overheated, for you will see their grease sticking of a blue color to their sides and run in hard lumps. Upon the whole, whatever appearances of your health your hawk may exhibit after stone and casting, you are not to consider her as really inseam till she is set to her wings and exercised gradually from easy to long flights. Then will she break grease and be prepared to your mind throughout her whole body. End of chapter twenty eight. Chapter twenty nine of a Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Merland and Hobby The Merland and Hobby are nearly of the same size and disposition. The former builds her nest in heath, and the latter on a tree. The Merland, the diminutive of the falcon, is capable of being made exceedingly manny and tame. She is best when bred from the iron. She will kill partridges, but excels every hawk at larks and snipes. She will fly at heck all the year round, except two months when she is taken down to the mew at cocking time. Her weakness is her chief defect, which hinders her from keeping the fist in windy weather. She is to be trained in every respect like the falcon. You may fly her in the forenoon till ten o'clock, give her rest in the heat of the day, and from two o'clock you may fly her till sunset. If you diet her properly, there is no hawk able to give better sport. You may enter her at quail, but she gives exquisite pleasure at the lark, 
mounting to a very high place, if yet an ice. In a plain country she will drive the lark so fast in the air, both making the one stoops and the other buckles for a long time, and if the lark get down, she darts into the door or window of a house for safety, but never takes to a thicket or bush, she being a long-winged bird, and always sits on the open ground. As to the hobby, just before this bird is able to perch on the side of her nest, take her away to another you have provided for her on a tree in a garden, where she may be out of harm. There, feed her with bits from the point of a stick, sharpened for this purpose, till she is able to stand firmly on her legs and pull hard at her meat. This artificial nest is not to be above the reach of a man. Then begin to lure her thence by your voice to your fist, and a single foot is enough at first. As she increases in strength, you are to increase the distance. Scratch, till she obey your voice from as far as she is able to hear it, and wait on you in the air wherever you would have her. When she is fully summed, dress her in jesses, bewits, and bells, and accustom her to the hood and fist by gentle usage. Then train her with larks, never giving her any from the hand or fist, but allowing her to kill two or three on the lure. Afterwards, tie one of them to a creance of brown thread, and let her fly at it, after it has got to the height of a tall tree. When she has killed two or three this way, she will go eagerly to her business, affording immense diversion to the spectators. Being thus thoroughly trained, you may permit her to fly at head continually at those times you have no use for her. But take care that, for some days before, you lure her by your voice from about a quarter of a mile, and there feed and leave her. When she is fed, she will directly return to the place where she was trained up at first, that is, to her heck. On resting days, after her gorge, she will soar at noon out of sight, and by these high flights will gain as thoroughly a knowledge of the country as any haggard. There is, on this account, no danger of her being lost when she remains behind you, sue-footed within four or five miles of your residence. For, after she has finished her meal, she will return to her heck, and in this course she is to continue till the cocking season, that is, till the first of March, when she is taken down for two months. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 of A Treaty of Modern Falconry by James Campbell this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Jeerfalcon. The Jeerfalcon is the bird of passage, her eyrie being in Moscovy, Norway, and Prussia. She is of a fierce and fiery nature, very hardily managed and reclaimed, but being once overcome, proves an excellent hawk, scarce refusing to strike at anything. She does not naturally fly by the river, but at heron and other big game. In going up to her gate, she does not hold the course or way that other hawks do, but climbs up upon her train. When she finds any fowl, as soon as she has reached her, pulls her down, if not at first, yet at the second or third encounter. You train this bird just as you would the falcon. You must make her very gentle, both at home and abroad, before you enter her at game. After you have gained this point, you are to teach her to come to the dead pelt of hens fowl, heron, or any other flesh of the same kind. For, being dead, it will not overheat her, nor tempt her to thirst at herself. 
You muft allow her to touch none of the flefh, except from your hand. All the while fhe is pluming, cheer her with your voice as you go about her, and fit by her on your knees. By this means she will look for her food from your hand only, never minding that she has in her foot, and be entirely reclaimed from carrying. The jeer falcon flies with great spirit at herons, but always take care to give her the due reward the moment she brings down the fowl. This shows the necessity of training a hawk well at first, for if she be well made at the beginning, she is everlastingly made. Before you spring any fowls, let her kill half a dozen at the lure, close by you, having a pair of short cleances at it, to prevent her from carrying. For when she sees the fowl fluttering, she is apt to come down rapidly, in order to rake it off, let the creances into her, and so the neither crosses your design nor is it put into a pet by your opposition. When she has the fowl, go gently in to her. Give her nice bits of meat, and she will leave it untouched to come to your fist. This method, diligently observed, will effectually reclaim the haggard jeer falcon to fly well and kill fowl, but especially to pursue the heron. This is the game at which they give the best diversion by the stateliness of their flight. And intermediate birds are the most proper for it these as they are not yet habituated to any particular sort of prey may be easily reclaimed by the following course first you are to consider that jeerfalcons newly taken from the air are full fed and therefore you are not to suddenly change their natural way of living giving them neither too hard food nor labor until they are mean hawks in good plight will not only fight at game which they cannot be easily come at but wait wait for a better opportunity this is the case with old hawks but young unexperienced birds will fly at any disadvantage this caution of old hawks robs the falcon of the sport but to make them more eager he needs only to lessen the quantity of their food and then will fly boldly at every thing he springs to them yet this diminution must be made with prudence for fear of weakening the hawks the flight at heron depends entirely on the eye and force of the hawk, and can receive no hindrance or encouragement from the falconer, who has only to view and admire her motions. It may be just observed that no hawk is so liable as the jerfalcon to perish by being overheated. And, secondly, if your hawk be a fresh haggard, or newly such, she will be the better able to endure fatigue. But you are carefully to study whether her taste be already formed to another game than you would fly at her should this be the case you are to use all your art to break off all her natural habits and to make her take on those which which are most agreeable to your own will after the season of making and flying is over your hawk is to be gradually filled up to full flesh and mewed with all care as the jeer falcon is a heavy bird green sods often shifted are the best perch for her for their moistness and softness save her feet from being hurt by her own weight set water and stones by her and give her the whole range of the mew to move in and she will manage herself better than any person can do when you take her again from the mew you are to have fair jolly capacious ruster hoods through which you can give her plumage bones or stones to purge her and also washed meat there is much danger in feeding her and therefore this operation should be gradually performed 
The furthest space wherein a gyr falcon can be made, ready for the lure from the mew, is fix weeks. Her life is in danger if she receives the least heat in her grease. If all due care is taken of her, she will continue good for twenty years. She is indeed excellent at the heron or kite, but if you want to train her to the river, you are referred to the directions given on this subject with regard to the haggard falcon. End of chapter 30